everybody. My name is Eric Johnson, and I'm here to run into the fog again with my brother, Derek. Hey, Derek. Good afternoon. Always fun to run into the fog with you. And our guest today is Angie Tuglas. Hi, Angie. Hey, thanks for having me. So glad you're here. You know, we met you through our good friend, mutual friend, August Jackson. And I think you guys probably have a, a longer, you know, backstory than we've got with August. But uh, August preceded you on this podcast by a few editions. And um, he recommended you and, and your book. And I've uh, been looking forward to having you on here, talking with Derek and me. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. August said really cool things about you guys. So we'll see. We'll find out. Well, Derek, what are we up to here? What, uh, what edition is it? So obviously it's uh, November the 3rd of 2021, episode 29 is being recorded today and we expect to release this uh, around March 15th of 2022. So, uh, you know, if we do some predictions in today's episode, Angie, or uh, otherwise our listeners will understand uh, if maybe uh, new uh, intel is out that uh, either confirms or refutes some of those predictions we might go into today, right? That makes right it extra on. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, Angie, Derek and I are coming out here from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the south side of town and in, uh, in the country. Derek's on the north side of town in the suburbs. Uh, and uh, where are you today? And tell us how you got there. And then tell us about your book. Yeah. So I am just outside Detroit in Dearborn, Michigan. And how did I get here? Oh, very good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go back. Um, so I grew up in the Chicago area, and I started my career in tech startups um, out of undergrad at Northwestern there. I have an engineering degree that I never really used, went into software, and this was before the e-commerce bubble burst. So we were having a lot of fun building cool companies. We were naive. We were going to take on the world, build a cool place to work. We'd work there forever. We didn't need venture funding because then they tell you what to do. Um, and then the bubble burst. And we learned that having capital is kind of important to a business longevity. Um, so then I applied to business school and took the most lucrative contract job I could find in the meantime, since I was poor, ended up at the CDC in Atlanta, which nowadays everybody knows who the CDC is, right? But back then you'd say CDC and they'd be like, C CD what? Um, um, good or bad, it's uh, very well known now. And we were actually building the first version of the electronic disease surveillance system, which connects all the public health centers across the country, because prior to that had been paper-based. So you can see why it's kind of important. Uh, unfortunately, though, you, you learn as a, as a young engineer that uh, there's a little bit of bureaucracy in the government. And so, so getting anything done was, wasn't that easy. And after working in startups, it was a contract with option to hire. And by the end, they said, hey, why don't you hire on? And, do this for a really long time. I said, it's been great guys, but um, I'm gonna go to business school and, and learn about what I missed out of the startup. And I went to Duke and this is where I feel like Derek might have some opinions on that. You know, real quickly uh, on that. So my, my and Eric, uh, we had a, our late aunt taught, uh, well, she didn't teach, she, she worked at Duke Hospital uh, in Durham for forever. Uh, pathology, if I remember correctly. Eric, can you confirm that? Um, she got me hooked on Duke basketball. There's worse programs to be hooked on, right? <laughs> um, and that's a 
that's a great thing until 2015 rolls around and they play my Wisconsin Badgers, which I'm an alum of. So is Eric in the national championship game. And my, my heartstrings were being pulled uh, both directions, but just for this podcast and for you listeners that only adjust this by audio, you won't see this, but uh, I went back to my cupboard and I found this great cup that says go to hell Carolina. So that's an inside joke. Uh, <laughs> University of North Carolina is what uh, Chapel Hill, 15 miles or so away from Duke. And I know, you know, that rivalry, rivalry uh very well and uh you understand the meaning behind that cup oh yes yes and it was hilarious you know a little story for everybody is i went to business school full-time at duke and the first week you have orientation and they teach you all sorts of things so imagine you're in this auditorium with people many of them from around the world and all different from all different industries and backgrounds and they teach you the duke basketball chants one of which is literally just go to hell carolina go to hell carolina and that's all they say and you look around the room and all the international students who aren't used to basketball in the first place and don't know anything about this rivalry are thinking, what did I sign up for? And it's hilarious. <laughs> now that we've turned off all of our listeners who happen to be Tar Heel fans, <laughs> so let's, keep, let's, let's keep going. All right. All right. So Duke, um, but you know, we, we love our, our Chapel Hill neighbors actually in Duke. Like it's not, it's not like other rivalries. And um so I went to business school. After the whole government thing, I was curious about how big companies worked or, or didn't work, as I wondered. And I convinced Ford to hire me into one of their leadership programs. And Ford has great leadership programs. And so I went into their technology leadership program, which rotates you around a lot, gives you a lot of experiences. And I became known as the person to give the big cross-functional global complex challenge that no one else wanted to take a career risk on, which suited me perfectly. So entrepreneur by background. So really, I've always been an entrepreneurial leader. And that's when I started leading transformations, um, setting up global, center, global centers of excellence, figuring out what to do about personal data protection and privacy. It was starting to become a topic. And someone said, here's $10 million, go figure it out, uh, which was a great experience. Um, and so a lot of things like that, service-oriented architecture. And then I stayed at Ford longer than I thought. I thought I'd be there two years. I thought, hey, let's check out a big company for two years and then go back to little companies. And I learned that in a big company, you can keep switching jobs by staying in the same company. And so I stayed almost five years. So let's say twice as long as I planned. And I stayed through the big layoffs. While I was there, we laid off 30% of the employees. And um, it was a, it's going to sound weird, but it's a great experience because Ford's really respectful of people and very good at doing that. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it. But I've never seen anyone do it as well since. So I stayed through that. And then a year later, I went to GMAC the year before the mortgage crisis. So this is where in the story I used to tell people, just wherever I go next, don't follow me. <laughs> because we have startups that no longer exist. We have Ford goes through massive restructuring. And then the financial crisis hits. And I'm working for a company that's just bleeding mortgages. So more fun challenges there. So I continue with the big, complicated global challenges. Um, we had separated from General Motors not long before. We didn't have a bunch of global systems. We needed to put those in place. So I just started doing big projects. I did a $130 million platform replacement, 28 countries. I did a bet the division initiative on a product where we had our old product line with 70% of the revenue. And it was a General Motors product. And we only had four years left to use it and to use all the systems that was being sold through and processed through. So that was one of my projects, 
do that, basically save the division. Fortunately, it was very successful. Uh, and then there was a big culture change that I executed too uh, in the insurance division. So I figured going into GMAC, this is how you know, I'm still in Dearborn because I went to Dearborn for Ford and I'm still here because I stayed for GMAC, which turned into Ally. And every two to three years, there was a new big challenge. I'd say, hey guys, I'm done. Here's my succession plan. Everything's in place. It looks great. Let me tie it in a bow. And they'd say, hey, look at this big new challenge. You know, we, we need a new platform here, or we need, we have a product line that's at risk here, or we have a culture challenge over here. And I stayed, bottom line, 12 years, which is 10 years longer than I thought I would. Um, and that was about two to three years ago. I finally extracted myself from corporate America. And that's when I wrote my book because I always, always wanted to write a book. Um, we could talk more about that and anything else you want. And just started, just went independent. Friends called me and said, are you really leaving this time? I said, yep, <laughs> finally. Um, and I just started working with some startups, friends who are in startups to help them grow their companies really, really fast. That's but, I'm still in, but I'm still in Dearborn. So I haven't moved yet. I had forgotten where Ally came from. That's, uh, you jogged my memory. That's, that's pretty good. Well, what's your book about? Uh, give us title and, you know, uh, dust jacket. Yeah. So transformable, how to perform death defying feats, of business transformation. And what, what happened was all these different transformative things I did, programs, initiatives, whatever you want to call them. I realized there was a pattern to what I was doing that was making me successful. And I really just wanted to get that out. So I actually started the book by blogging. And I'm an awful blogger. Didn't, didn't work. Didn't take. Um, to be a good blogger, you have to have that consistency. Like, and then you have to be able to package it into its own little entities so it can live on its own in each blog post. And everything I was doing was interconnected. And I don't have the patience and discipline, honestly, to like every week, like put out something that's compact and to my satisfaction and all that. So start out, start out with a WordPress site, which helped me structure the book ultimately. Uh, but it is about how to execute anything big and complicated that your organization has never done before. So I look at transformation. So it could be things on the global scale, things like I just talked about, but it could be small relatively. Like you might be a small family owned business and you need to change, especially in light of things that have happened recently in the world. Maybe your supply chain needs to be reorganized. Maybe you're de too dependent upon certain things. Maybe you're changing generations. Uh, but it doesn't really matter what size of company you are. You're facing something big and complex that you've never done before. And so my book provides a roadmap for you to help figure out how to do that. That's exciting. Well, and, you know, it came up earlier this week that every stakeholder group, whether that's a corporation or uh, a town or, you know, a civic institution, has a theory of transformation that is fundamental to where it how it navigates into the future. And I don't know if you've heard that nomenclature used before, but this, uh, this idea of the theory of the transformation of the entity has to be believed in, you know, by those stakeholders, they all have to sort of believe in it in order for it to become worth the pain, I guess, of, uh, of gutting that out in order to get to the other side of it. Can you talk about that psychology a little bit? Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's a great, I like how you said that, the, the theory of transformation. Um, it's at, at the core of transformation, successful transformation, it's all about people. 
It's all about a system of people and about taking them on a journey to get to somewhere new that they haven't been before. And absolutely, especially in the beginning, but ongoing as well. If you don't get people's commitment and they can't imagine that future, then they're not going to go there. And so you have to get them excited about it. You have to get them to understand it more than anything, because let's be, let's be real. Like in a, if you're talking about a bigger organization or even, even a smaller one, like not everyone is going to be like, rah, rah, like, this is awesome. Let's go transform. Right. No matter what you do and what you say to them. So, so really though, you want them to imagine as much as you can of that future. So that it's not so scary and unknown. You want to get people you can on board to be really excited about it, but the, the rest of them, you just need them to go with. Um, which is easier said than done, but but absolutely, you have to get them to not just buy into the concept, but be able to start imagining it. I think. You know what? It, obviously, a big buzzword in uh, the business circles these days continues to be digital transformation. Yeah, and I, I liked what you said earlier, Angie. Whether it be you know, the small, uh, really ultra micro small business, you know, let's take a family-owned pizzeria, pretty popular in your hometown of Chicago, right? Um, you know, understanding what they need to do to update their systems to have stronger throughput, better supply chain, you, know, you name it, uh, connect with today's uh, tactics with regards to marketing and advertising and uh, maybe what was stuck or stuck in a rut with, with what they were used to. And then you get into these ultra mega cap scenarios that are they're a bit tougher to understand um you know you, your book i would assume similar to your website and what i love about your website tuglas.com is you know you've got these tragic tales and they're tragic tales but uh, done from a, a little bit of a i'm gonna call it a, a bit of a character sketch about a scenario and moving through of the eight or nine tragic tales on your website, do you have a favorite? And are those inspired directly from uh, corporate scenarios that you've encountered in your time? Oh, there are so many good ones though. And and they are, they're all real stories. They're all real stories by you know people I know that they've experienced. Um, I'll pick a couple to talk about. Um, one, one is really, we'll do a couple extremes. So one is really interesting because so John Boris um, worked for General Motors. He's an executive for many, many years, um, different parts of General Motors, GMAC. And he told the story of how General Motors basically ruined their product lines a long time ago. And it's just fascinating because they set out to cost, cut costs and they decided to commonize all the product lines and like make them as, as similar as possible. The problem was that they had set up all their product lines in a great way such that people would grow into new vehicles over time as they got older and had more money. And so it was a great progression that had been set up. And so you had very distinctive product lines that felt different for a reason. And you could take a customer through life with the vehicles. Then they started making everything as common as possible and not realizing they were really transforming the whole, season, the whole system. It wasn't just the people, it was the product, it was the manufacturing. It wasn't just let's cut costs here and there, which is how they looked at it. But ultimately the systemic effects of what they did started to destroy the uniqueness of each vehicle. And then, you know, you no longer had that difference. And so there was no longer this progression 
of stair steps where you could move from one vehicle to another, everything started to look the same and quality, even worse, quality started to suffer because they were imposing these new parts upon each division and they weren't designed for those common parts. So it was, it was fascinating, it's a fascinating story. So that's one that I really like, it's one extreme of a really big company that makes a big misstep. It's been around for a very long time, clearly got over that because they're still around, right? But um, another extreme is my friend, Lee Senderoff, and she worked for this gaming company. So think typical Silicon Valley startup gaming company. And it was like eight years old. And this is a really common point for startups. Actually, if they're making it, if they're doing well, they've got one really successful product at around eight years old. And they're just, they're just making it. And then they look around and they've gotten enough prominence. Maybe they're going public, whatever's going on. And they're like, what do we do next? We need to do something. And so this company, instead of realizing this is a major change for them and figuring out how to do that and treat that like the transformative thing it was, they just started grasping at straws almost. They're like, okay, let's build four new products at the same time for a company that had only built one really. And uh -huh. then they got impatient. They started buying companies. So now we're running four new products and we're buying companies. And then they realized they needed to replatform their original product because it was on nine-year-old technology. And so, okay, like let's recode the whole game that we've been successful based on at the same time. And eventually it just, it didn't work out very well. The, the, the company kind of lingered and started going down in terms of, and you, I can't say who it was, but it's it's a company you would have heard of back then. And it's, it's fascinating though, because it's the other extreme, right? You have this totally new thing you're taking on as a company and all these things, you're just trying to catch up with the things you're doing. And that's another just common pitfall, but they're all really fun stories. Just that they're quick and they're fun. Yeah. So would you say transformation, the success of transformation depends on the point in which the company's at and its its life cycle or maturity? In other words, you know, GM figured it out. Maybe they misstepped and they created, you know, a, a weird sequence in the progression of cars, you know, relative to what it used to. It tried to be sort of a satisfier to all rather than sequence to life stages, right? Uh, whereas the the gaming example, you know, maybe they were motivated to, I'm going to assume, you know, if they were motivated to go public, then they're also uh, inspired to convince their investors that they can do right with the money and reinvest in the business. Maybe they took too much on from a transformation point of view. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that then, at least from where I stand, enters uh, or embraces the concept that force um, diffusion is a real thing. And you end up in a situation where you're, you're simply working on too much stuff, you know, all at the same time. And the, the lack of focus or inability to focus on the right stuff makes that transformation less, less uh, probable for success down the road. I don't know. Eric, what do you think? Well, I was going to say, it sounds like what they tried to do was uh, discover what their next growth platform was going to be, and they weren't sure about it. They had they had a degree of uncertainty about what that uh, future looked like, and as a result, they spread their bets. You know, they put it all on red rather than all on red forty-seven. You know, to use the roulette wheel analogy. And had they known that red forty-seven was going to be the one, they wouldn't have lost so much of their concentration of force, as Derek suggests earlier. 
And the analogy we sometimes use at Aurora is instead of a fist punching, it ended up with five fingers tickling, uh, so to speak. And you sort of mediocre yourself into irrelevance in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but this, this, I really am interested in this notion of the mighty falling, you know, and I think I mentioned when we, we talked earlier that one of my, I don't know if it's a hobby exactly, it's a collection, actually. I collect losers and the stories of the losers, kind of like you got these tales of woe, uh, tragic tales on your, on your website, is at what point did a contender end up as a loser? And then how do we walk back from that precipice of loss and figure out where the mistakes were made? You know, what did they miscalculate so that then we can share that with other people who are in that same sort of situation and trying to balance those scales for themselves? Yeah, it's interesting the patterns that appear when you start doing that, isn't it? Like, I'm sure you see all sorts of patterns that are appearing. I mean, I've, I definitely have seen some. Well, arrogance is the first pattern, you know, the, that there is... The opposite of arrogance, uh, I would describe as teachability. Uh, and whether someone is teachable or not, uh, you can abstract that then to the culture of an organization. Is their culture teachable? Do they seek to discover where they're wrong, or do they only seek to reinforce their false assumptions? In which case, you know, that, that may be why you're attracted to those types of collaborations, Angie, I don't know, just as, a, as an outside observer who doesn't know you very well, um, you mentioned don't follow Angie, you know, because they get into trouble. Maybe that's what attracts you subconsciously is, boy, I can see how these guys have some fundamental, you know, miscalculations going on. I can help in this one area and help them maybe, in, you know, sort of like yeast in a, in a, what they call that yeast in dough that sort of works its way through the dough to do that transformation culture and I think that's, if I, having not read your book, by the way, sorry, Mia Culpa, I will. <laughs> is that what your book is about? Is about how to sort of knead that yeast through the culture so that transformation is something they have an appetite for rather than, you know, not interested. It is from concept to execution, how, how you do it, how you can successfully transform. There are like, there are a lot of books out there that are these boring case studies. And first of all, I was determined not to write a boring book because um, then I couldn't even read it myself to you know revise it if it were boring. And and then there are a lot of books that are like super detailed checkbox books, right? Like here is exactly how you do this. And there's like a zillion lists that you can get lost in. But my book straddles in the middle of how do you how do you do this? How do you transform? And it really gets into the people system like you're talking about. Like it's, it's all about people. It's about some certain concept like relativity. Like everybody looks at something relative to something else and you can leverage that in a transformation or in any leadership really. Um, really all the concepts in my book, when you start reading them are, are typical leadership concepts, but they're the ones that I found most relevant to transformative situations. And I really like how you talked about the teachability because I definitely do have this addiction to the possible of, of talking about the, figuring out how to make something possible, figuring out, talking about the possibilities and that is definitely something that I've, as I get older, I embrace more and more and I'm more stubborn about taking, this can't be done for an answer and figure out there's always a, there's always a way to make it possible. Now, whether you choose to do it after you figure out that way is a whole other question, right? You can get into cost benefit and decision-making and all that, but 
almost anything is possible if you really try to figure it out. Curious, Angie, is there a is there a sector or a, if you're willing to name a specific business that you know you would uh, as a transformation expert just be dying to get your hands on uh, <laughs> to say, wow, if I could have a shot at helping this industry or this particular business transform from X to Y, um, what would it be? Oh, that is. I'm like kid in a candy store. Right? There, 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 there are so many things out there that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give. Let me, let me say something first before I answer the question. Then I'll answer the question because I'm pretty much industry agnostic. Although I will give you some examples of industries I think really could use some help because it's all about the people. I mean, Eric said it a minute ago. He talked about teachability and. I'm very choosy about my clients these days. Like I, I have more demand than I have capacity of being one person. And so if someone's not open to really, really growing and really transforming, then I'm, I'm not interested in working with them. And so I'd have to say that whatever the industry were, the company, if the leaders aren't serious about transformation, forget it. Honestly, <laughs> to anyone out there who's in this situation, if you're not serious, don't bother. Like you're going to get all your employees hopes up that you're going to change and you get some of them excited. Everyone's like, yeah, are we going to do this? And then if it's all just going to be words and like, then, then don't do it later on. They'll just be even more disappointed in you than they were to begin with when they had no idea that they could transform. So that being said, if leaders were in any industry open and serious about it, I think there are some really interesting spaces when you start looking at things like construction. There are still some really old school industries by how they operate. And you know, there's still a lot of places where people do stuff in ways that you just, some of us can't fathom. Like there, there's a lot of you know, word of mouth, putting things on paper, you know, like it's 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 a lot of places where you could make a really big dent in them by just you know bringing some of that that transformation intelligence to some of these industries, some of these corporations, but I'm fascinated by things. I also have a bit of a bias for things that get made like a tangible product. Maybe it's because I worked in financial services for so long that I'm desperate now to talk about like something physical that you can make that's not just you know bits and bytes. Uh, but there's something to be said for knowing and helping people see the product they're producing and being like, okay, like this is now what's going to happen. You can actually see what you just did to your supply chain. You can see how the customer got a better product. You can see it in this data, you know, and, and more importantly, you can actually see something there at the end that you improved. Um, and I think those are some of the industries too that haven't changed that much versus others. Yeah. You know, I shared uh, maybe six months ago, might've been a little longer than that uh, with Derek that uh, we're about to see a manufacturing renaissance in the United States uh, in the decade ahead, because when the dollar loses its reserve currency status, we're going to have to make our own stuff. Um, so that's an optimistic statement, uh, by the way. It's, it's one that suggests that I think there is a future for innovators who can harness those trends to their advantage, isolate and optimize their offer for you know, the criteria their markets will reward with share, and then figure out what everybody else is gonna do before they allocate capital and put it at risk. And then I think that constant willingness to recalibrate 
the old saying that you're perfectly aligned for the results you're getting means that you got to recalibrate something upstream in order to produce a downstream result. And so talk to me a little bit about that. And, and you know, maybe for the folks who are out there that I think will start those companies, uh, the, the pre-entrepreneur uh, who's, you know, scared about not having health insurance or have has a kid in college or, you know, is in college themselves and trying to figure out how to not go to work for the man, so to speak, and instead, you know, uh, do their own thing. What what should they be thinking about? I guess from a transformative, transform transformable yield potential. You know, what should their mindset look like? That is that is a great question. Um, so I love that these are not scripted. And now I have to think though for a minute. <laughs> so. There are just so many angles to that. And I think about those, those people and, you know, quite honestly, I count myself as a, a bit of one of those people where I'm, you know, when I left Corporate America, I thought, I, I thought I'd start a company actually. And then I just kind of fell into consulting. And so that's not to say I'll keep consulting forever. And I'm always in the back of my mind has been this, how do you, how can you start a company that produces jobs? Because that's a big issue we have, right? So absolutely, you know, if we're optimistic, we're going to trend back toward creating more things here in this country. And that will create some jobs. But right now, the trend is so bad in terms of people not having jobs that it's going to take a while to get to a good equilibrium there. And so I'm always thinking, like, how can I do something that creates a lot of jobs? And I haven't come up on the thing that would make me excited enough yet. But I do think about this a lot. And I work with a lot of startups. And it's, it's, it's easy for people who are starting a company. So part of it's just blocking and tackling to begin with, right? You're gonna try a few things and you can't get too obsessed about one exact thing, but you do have to take them all far enough to see if you can start making it at what you're trying to do. Uh, but then it's amazing to me in small companies how quickly people get used to the way they've always done it. It does not take long. It can take just a couple of years. It doesn't take long. And this I see as a big point that holds some of these people back. So how do you keep that open mindset when you're starting is I think really important for people to think about. So they're going to take this risk that's already scary enough. And how do they not just get sucked into the details of, okay, I've got it. I'll make this contact and make this connection and improve this process and build this software to do this and that and the other, but still keep a strategic mind of, okay, just because we figured that out doesn't mean that now that's set in stone forever, but that happens really easily and really fast. And I think that's a fascinating thing that I've seen recently, just how quickly that happens. And I know it's hard to think about when you're at the very beginning too, but if you don't think about it really soon, you will just become that person that's like, okay, I've figured all these five things out and I'm just going to run my business that way forever. And before you know it, you've created this rigidity and it's really important not to when you're, when you're that small. So that suggests to me that maybe uh, the ability to break routine as a character trait is almost a prerequisite to be successful at this. And that is not necessarily innate. It can be taught. You can teach children how to be comfortable with having their routines broken uh, so that they have an appetite for it. And at least they don't run away from it when they encounter it. Because later in life, I mean, what you're talking about is that two years to get the routine going and then suddenly you've, you know, 
scleros, I'm, I'm failing the word, you've hardened the arteries of the organization, even the small nimble one to the point where it can't, it's, it's like it kills off any variants that the corporate immune system just attacks that different thing and just crushes it so that it can't change what's happening. And that's, that's actually, you know, what you're trying to do as a transformable consultant is you're trying to undermine their immunity to change. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard anyone put it quite that way before. I like it. It makes it sound like the organization is a, is a person unto itself, but yeah, the immunity to change. And one way you see this too happening, which is interesting if you talk to companies of any size, really, when they talk about how they have a monolith of code, if they're a company that actually has produced software or somehow they needed to build custom software to be whoever they are, to be their service platform or to be a software tool or whatever, um, you know, which is almost every business these days, if they end up with a monolith of code at some point, that's a sign that they had that problem. Right. So that just means like they've got this big thing of code and they didn't build it to be in pieces where they could easily update it and change it and add on to it. And, and it's, it's fascinating the different sizes of company that you'll talk to that say they have a monolith of code and how quickly they create one because they thought, okay, we just built that and we built that. And they're not thinking, wait a minute, the bigger picture, how, how are we flexible to the market? How are we responsive? How can we extend on this? And I'm not talking about detailed planning for every eventuality, right? Don't get me wrong there. It's not like you hire the Fortune 500 architect who then builds like the perfect solution for decades to come. I'm talking about the common sense of, hey, this will have to change. And every year or two, are we looking at that and making sure we're, we're flexible enough or we're just adding on to it? Eric, that makes me think of our saying here at Aurora, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You know, we've said that forever, right? So um, sometimes in business, it, it's quite comfortable to stay mired in the nine-year-old code, right? And, you know, it's working. We're still selling. We're still relevant in the, the marketplaces in which we compete. But it can be far less comfortable to take on that idea that I'm going to transform all this or I'm going to rewrite the code or I'm going to, you know, acquire this company to strengthen the portfolio, or I'm going to go and completely overhaul the way in which the construction industry has done things forever, for instance, or the manufacturing industry, agriculture, whatever, you know, that might be that might be those environments, Angie, that you spoke of that could have the potential to create, you know, numerous jobs, you know, and, and kind of help to solve that problem. Um, I love that immunity to change and being able to keep that open mindset just to better yourself. I'm a big believer in that too. Um, you know, as we seek to wrap up, you know, the conversation today, Angie, you know, uh, if you could go back to kind of your your uh, 20-something-year-old self, you know, you're getting started, whether it be at this, probably not the CDC, but maybe it was uh, when you went to Ford, and knowing what you know now about transformation, having learned, you know, case example, real life, you know, after case example, real life, you know, what, what might you tell yourself, you know, for those listeners who might be saying, well, you know, just the, the idea of taking on a transformation and being part of one is so daunting and overwhelming that I, I just don't even know where to start. What, what, what advice would you give yourself you know, back in those times? Yeah, I think one of the big things I would tell myself is there, at the core of successful transformation, there are really three things. One is commitment. 
One is know-how of how to transform. And the third is keeping a focus on business value, keeping that big picture in mind, keeping everything driven toward actually creating value that you're setting out to create. And if you can get those three things, you can pull it together. But you need commitment at the beginning and throughout. You need know-how. If you don't have know-how, you can, you can go get, like we talked about teachability. You can go get people. Like that's what I do right now. People hire me to help them because they don't have know-how. You, know, you can find other people like me out there. You can read things. You can, unfortunately, it's not enough of a discipline transformation that you can just go take a class on it. Not a good class. You can go take some of those checkbox classes or they'll give you a lot of lists. And personally, I feel overwhelmed by that. But so I like really simple concepts, really commitment, know-how, and keeping it focused on business value and not getting caught up in the, here's the common thing that happens is you, you're running off and you're creating stuff and you're building whatever you are, you're making connections and you're creating processes. And then suddenly the goal becomes to finish the project. The goal isn't to finish the project. The goal is to get the business value. And if whatever you're doing in that project isn't going to get you the business value anymore, like you're way off track no matter what you finish in your project. So that's why that's the third one. That's huge. And by the way, I apologize for my dog, Aldo. Uh, somebody came up the driveway just now and he had to let the pack know. So forgive Aldo for that. And there's my other dog. Uh, I think it was my wife because I hear her over my shoulder. What I, want, what I wanted to say to that was, um, I think we have a problem with quitting. Uh, and by quitting, I mean, Sometimes the project we started was the wrong project and we end up having commitment bias to sort of see it through and finish the project as you described, yet the business value has changed and we're going to pour a lot of good money after bad to just see that thing through. And a lot of the companies that you talked about, I think about the financial companies during the great financial crisis and how many of those behave that way, you know, who, who had their assumptions challenged by something they'd never seen before, the so-called black swan, not accounting for their own sheltered lives, since those things have happened in cycles throughout history. And now is the time that for that cycle to happen again. Yet it was unbelievable to them. It was unthinkable that they could be the ones having their, you know, expertise challenged like they were. And then ultimately, um, Maybe that's a good place for us to quit is to talk about quitting and having the self-discipline to be able to pull the plug on things when their time has passed. Any advice? Oh, that's a good one. So there's actually a section at the end of my book that that's basically a rescue mission. It's basically like, like you walk into a situation and things are a mess. What do you do? How do you, how do you diagnose this? Diagnose it. And it gets into that and it talks about like sometimes it's time to, first of all, I give you some very specific guidance on how to actually go figure out what's wrong. And then it gets into the however many options, I don't remember how many there are, but maybe 10, maybe eight options of things that you can then now do. And one of them is, is it's over, like game over. It's not worth it anymore. You know, write off whatever you need to in the books and like call it done. Uh, sometimes that may be in conjunction with restart it. Sometimes you're not ready to restart it, whether you're just fatigued or whether you don't really know what to do or whatever reason. Um, sometimes it needs time to just settle in the organization and people's minds and hearts before you tackle it again, if it's important enough. Uh, but there is definitely like knowing when to quit is very important. And it's, it's a tricky thing 
right? Because now you get into politics too, because you know, organizational politics, because some people would love to quit at any point, no matter what, they may not have the right mindset. <laughs> but then there's the, you're not actually getting the business value that this makes sense for. Okay, like freeze it in place and decide whether you need to really evaluate it and just freeze it for a moment or whether you need to kill it right away or whether you freeze it and assess it and then kill it. That's also where it's good to get outside advice. Like, honestly, especially if you're spending a lot of money on a transformation, your run rate could be big. I've been on ones where the run rate is many millions a month. And at that point, you're in a tough situation, right? Like you pause it and you've got all these different people working on it and you're still paying for a lot of that. So it's costing you money to pause it, but it's also costing you money to run it. So it's, it's really, it's a tough situation. I've done it a number of times though, where you have to, the right thing to do is freeze it if it seems like a disaster and like spend whatever it is, two to four weeks, like digging in with some really smart people to figure out what you really have and what you don't have and what you need to have and where you're trying to go. And then decide from there, like, do you recreate it in a different form? Do you restructure it? Do you kill it all together? What do you do with it? I'm going to ask Derek to take us out uh, here and bring it home. But uh, we faced that actually 18 months ago when our, our learning and events business called Reconverge uh, this was February, uh, and uh, the meeting was scheduled for April. The next version of the Reconverge conference was happening in April. And in Mar in February, when it became pretty clear that this thing was not going to be a thing anymore, you know, this whole business travel and conferences thing <clears throat> was going into limbo because of the lockdowns last year. It was tough to mothball that. Uh, that was an entire branded product line that we basically said, we don't know what we're going to do with this and we won't for a while. We got to convert everyone who's committed to that business into something else. We'll try and use those as lessons to power its resurrection someday. And here we are 18, 19 months later, and we're resurrecting it using the insights we gathered during the lockdown. So it was really great advice, Angie. And I hope you know, listeners to the podcast today take that and you know, take it to heart is that it's not necessarily quitting forever. It's just pausing until you can figure out what to do. Because if you just barrel through without knowing for sure that that's the right way, the business value may not come and all that allocated capital might be a waste of time. So Derek, take us home. Amazing uh, insights being brought up here on this uh, podcast edition. Know, commitment, know-how, and the creation of business value. That serves, although your standard rule to a T, you know, he serves as a watchdog, he's, he's committed, he has the know-how, and he was creating value for you uh, a few moments ago when he was parking. Um, all joking aside, Angie, you said a few things that I'm going to take away personally from this podcast. So you got to get your people committed uh, without commitment and that ability to imagine the future. You're, you're better off not doing some big transformation. Um, the second one uh, would be you know, looking at, uh, to Eric's point, studying those losers and seeing the patterns. You, know, you, you both had a really good exchange around that, being able to watch the patterns by the losers and some of those lessons you know, allow you to then migrate over to the three big takeaways, commitment, know-how, and the creation of business value with these transformations. And I just love... Uh, I love this topic and I love that you came on running into the fog to, to run through that fog around transformations and what you're up against uh, you know, in that process with us. Thank you, Angie. Would share with our listeners, if you wouldn't mind, uh, how people can connect with you, um, 
you know, maybe yeah, a absolutely. quick plug of your website, you know, how they can uh, reach out to you. Yeah, so there's a lot of good stories on my website, um, tuglist.com, which is my, my last name.com. Um, there are also a lot of fun comics of pitfalls. I did draw all my own comics, and uh, that also keep, kept me motivated throughout writing the book. And the book as well, you can get it pretty much anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, IndieBound, um, but also through my website, there's a page that'll give you all the links and all the endorsements and all that fun stuff. But also one thing I would, I would say too is a trick because I know most people, there are a lot of people who don't really like to read a lot. That's totally fine. You can honestly pick up my book, read the comics, skim through it a bit and decide which parts are most relevant to you right now. And it is easy. I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback. I had a lot of feedback through the writing process too, from a lot of other executives that you can do that. You can pick it up and put it down and just consume a bit of it at a time. And you can just skim it and read the comics too if, if that suits your fancy. Awesome. Well, thank you, Angie, for being here with us, Eric. Always a pleasure. Um, thanks, everybody, for uh, joining Running Into the Fog with Angie Tuglis. Angie, uh, appreciate it. Eric, talk to you again in the next episode. Thanks, Angie. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody.